everyone, and welcome to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, episode six. I'm Naomi Baratera, your host, and thank you for taking the time to listen today. The goal of our podcast is to help our listeners expand their opera knowledge, and our content is always drawn from live events, classes, and lectures that we run throughout the opera season here at Lincoln Center in New York City. And I'm very excited to introduce our lecturer for today's episode, Maestro Stephen Osgood, giving an exceptional lecture on Berg's Lulu. Now to give you just a little bit of background on Maestro Osgood, this is his second season on the Guild's Community Program's Lecturer roster, and his series on 20th Century Opera last season was an instant hit with our audience. He is a versatile conductor, working in genres from Baroque through to 21st century works, and he has also worked with opera companies around the globe, including the New York City Opera, Atlanta Opera, the Juilliard School, Sarasota Opera, the Edmonton Opera Company, American Opera Projects, and the Netherlands Opera Company, to name just a few, as well as many symphonic and orchestral ensembles. Now, if you've ever read the plot synopsis of Berg's Lulu, you know that right from the get-go, this is a fairly complex opera. There is a lot of characters, the story is quite dense, and the music itself is also very complex. And during this lecture, Maestro Osgood did a lot of drawing on chart paper in order to help explain some of the musical concepts that he was covering. So this is going to explain to you some of the tearing noises you hear because he was literally writing on a giant post-it note and then pulling them off and putting them on the wall in the lecture room. But since you, our listeners, cannot see the chart paper, I'm going to quickly review some basic terms here in our intro that are related to various musical elements that will be discussed. So the first two terms we need to cover are 12-tone technique and serialism. In music, serialism is a compositional technique in which a set group of pitches or notes are sounded in a specific order, and the entire set must be sounded before any of the pitches can be repeated. We most commonly talk about or read about serialism as a 12-tone technique, meaning that the set of pitches contain all 12 unique pitches of the Western music scale or octave. So it is kind of like musical Sudoku, but with 12 pitch names instead of numbers. When composers approach the creation of their operas in this way, they can arrange the pitches in whatever order they want, and we call these unique orderings of 12 pitches tone rows. And sometimes, as is the case with Lulu, certain characters become associated with specific tone rows. Now, once a composer has created a tone row with a specific order of pitches, he or she can then manipulate the tone row in various ways, and there is a set of terminology in music that we use to describe these different ways that we can manipulate the tone rows. So the original tone row is called prime, and often musicians will shorten this and just say P. And then a composer can move through the row or arrange the row backwards, and this is called retrograde, sometimes shortened to R. A composer can then take the prime or original tone row and essentially flip it upside down or invert it, and we call this manipulation inversion or I. And then, as you might guess, a composer could also take the retrograde of the row and invert that, and we call that retrograde inversion, or RI. 
So in the end, we have prime retrograde inversion and retrograde inversion, or PRI and RI manipulations of a tone row. And as we move through the lecture, you are going to hear Maestro Osgood use these terms. So hopefully this first pass at all of this terminology will help keep things clear as we dig deeper and deeper into this complex work. Now, I was just telling some of my colleagues here in the lectures and community engagement department the other day that after hearing this lecture for the first time, Maestro Osgood is now my new lecture crush. I was hanging on every word, and I am thrilled to be able to share it with you, our podcast audience. So without any further delay, here is Maestro Stephen Osgood delving into the world of Berg's Lulu. Thank you, everybody. Good evening. So, Lulu. Alban Berg was born on February 9th, 1885. He died December 24th, 1935. He was 50 years old at the time of his death. Wozzeck was his first opera, and it premiered in 1925 when he was 40 years old. It was based on a play by George Buchner. Lulu is based on two plays by Frank Wedekind, Earth Spirit and Pandora's Box. Berg saw a production of Pandora's Box on May 29, 1905, which was directed by Karl Kraus. The play and its production, with Wedekind himself playing the role of Jack the Ripper in the final scene, affected Berg deeply. Tilly Wedekind, the playwright's wife, was, a, was the young actress who was playing Lulu in that production. She met her future husband in this production, and she recalls that night in her memoir. She says, in the hall, filled to capacity, there sat, one among many, a young man of 20 who looked like an angel. Decades later, the world became aware of the lasting impression that the play, the production, and the introductory talk by Karl Kraus had made on him. His name was Alban Berg, and one day he was to compose the opera Lulu. When Berg died in 1935, he had completed acts one and two in both piano vocal and the fully orchestrated score. The vocal score to Act 3 was virtually complete, certainly with all of the vocal lines set, and much of the orchestration of Act 3 was also complete. Berg drew a five-movement um, suite, orchestral suite, that involves a singer, the Lulu Suite, from this. Uh, he heard that performed before his death, but that was the only music of the opera that he ever actually heard. Helene Berg, his, his widow, asked Arnold Schoenberg to complete the orchestration. Schoenberg initially accepted, but then he changed his mind, either because of the amount of work he realized it would have entailed, or some say it was on account of the anti-Semitic references in Act 3. Helene Berg then forbade anyone else to complete the work, and this injunction stayed in place until her death in 1976. So when the opera premiered in Zurich in 1937, it was what was known as the two-act version. Acts 1 and 2 were performed in their entirety, and often the portions of Act 3, which Berg had orchestrated for the Lulu Suite, and included uh, there, were played following Act 2, and that was the end of the evening. Friedrich Serha, a Viennese composer, was selected to complete the orchestration of Act 3 after Helene Berg's death, because she couldn't say no anymore. The, th the three-act version premiered in 1979 with Pierre Boulez conducting, and that is what is performed today. 
Lulu is a massive work with extraordinary structure. It's seemingly infinite complexity. I picture those pictures of Einstein with arrays of mathematical symbols on the blackboard. There are sketches, uh, graphs, charts that Berg produced um, as he was working on this that would show all these different combinations and permutations of his musical material. It would be easy to get lost in just a single scene tonight, examining each layer of meaning, and to never even get halfway through Act One. And then now everybody running off to the opera would really miss a lot. <laughs> so instead, what I want to do tonight is look at the entire opera several times, each time peeling back one more layer. We may only get through three or four layers of this onion, but it's my hope that through this, with each one, you will have a greater co context and insight into the piece, which hopefully will be really, uh, you can draw on it immediately as you listen to a performance. It'd be easy for me to just draw charts and say, there you go, now you're on your own. But hopefully there'll be some immediate, perceivable, hearable things that you leave with tonight. But before we dive into Lulu the Opera, I want to take a few minutes to discuss some of the basic elements of 12-tone composition. Ooh. <laughs> Pioneered by Arnold Schoenberg and utilized by Berg increasingly throughout his career. Instead of talking about notes, we're just going to call them pitch classes because that sounds more scientific. We can assign numbers to it. Schoenberg's basic idea was that romantic harmony had gotten so far and yet there were still some notes in the chromatic scale that weren't getting equal treatment. And he wanted to devise a system of music where every single note was treated equally. Very fair of him. So as you will see, you, we can take this chromatic scale of 12 pitches, and we just we name uh, C zero, because that's easy. And then one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, up to the B, and then we get to another C. So that becomes zero again. Nice, easy, right? Those are the 12 pitch classes. There are 479,001,600 possible 12-tone permutations of these pitch classes. So all of the 12-tone music that could possibly be written is not done yet. So now, 12-tone music, we think, well, oh, that's not going to be very pretty, right? Well, not necessarily. This is a perfectly reasonable tone row that I've done here. It is a boring tone row written by me but it sounds like this. Three triads. I am going to now, here's another word, a simultaneity. Really just means do some things at the same time. So I'm gonna take three of these pitches, pitch classes, these brackets of three. Now I will play them simultaneously. And you get a major chord, a minor chord, a major chord, a minor chord. Beethoven could have written that. This is, in my boring 12-tone um, row, the prime. That's what the P stands for, prime version of it, starting on zero, because it starts there on that C. Very often, because there's 12, and we like dividing things up into pieces, we'll take the first half of it, and we'll take the second half of it, and just look at those as groups. So this, because there's six notes here, 
that we'll refer to as a hexachord. Six notes. First hexachord, second hexachord. This is still just boring tone row number one. Why not just do a chromatic scale? That's a row. Oh, I shouldn't have played the last C. If we do that, and we start breaking it up as we like to into tetrachords, so these first four notes, these next four notes, these next four notes, we notice that the contour of them is all just down. Maybe that's a little too boring for us. Maybe we want to see if there are a couple different versions of that contour without changing the pitch class content of these tetrachords. So we'll keep the first one because first one down is that's, that's not boring yet. Then, same four pitches as this, but now, and then the last one. So fully downwards, three down, one up, and then two down, two up. Just for our purposes, we'll label this first tetrachord X because it's the fully down one, Y, and Z. Well, it just so happens that that was good enough for Berg. The character Shigolch has a serial trope that is exactly that in its P0 form. And once I have created something that was good enough for Berg, then I just I stop. <laughs> Why do we call this a trope instead of a row? Because it really has to do with the way Berg used it in the opera. He was less concerned with this entire sequence of 12 pitches and keeping it intact. If he had, done, if he had really kept it intact whenever possible, we would say that was a row that he was using. A trope is just something, it's a, still a set of 12 pitches. We haven't broken that rule. But we're just saying we're going to allow ourselves to use bits and pieces of this as we want to. So particularly this Z shape here, this shows up in the opera all the time because this kind of shape, repeated over and over, that's a great ostinato underneath a scene. And if we want to move it up a little bit, and then we can do it again. So you now know how to write 12-tone music. <laughs> In layman's terms. But I go, I go through that explanation because that, the math of that, the shape and the calculus behind it, is critical to the way Berg was thinking. Every single note passage in these two books that it takes to get the whole opera of Lulu in. Every one of those can be traced back down to some prime version, permutation, inversion of a row or a trope. Period. That's why we could be here all night. Now you'll notice, if you, uh, I didn't do backwards. I didn't do retrograde. That would be just where you took a row and played it backwards. I also didn't do retrograde inversion. These are big things for Schoenberg, where you'd play it backwards and you flip it over. Berg wasn't so interested in those. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. He, he, when he was writing rows for his characters, it was so that the material, not the math, but the music of it, 
was going to communicate something about those characters and the situation that they're in. As soon as you do a retrograde version or, an in, uh, or a retrograde inversion of it, it's lost its, its audible characteristics. So Berg doesn't do that. There's one very notable exception with retrograde, which we will talk about. So we will now turn our attention to Lulu. And I want to first look at the plays on which it is based and the decisions that Berg had to make in structuring his opera. Frank Wedekind's first play, Spring Awakening, which is, you know, has played on Broadway in a version, was completed in 1891, although it did not reach the stage until 1906. He wrote the first treatment of, uh, his, the first version of his treatment of the Lulu tragedy in the years 1892 to 1895, while he was living in Paris. And he was leading a life of debauchery that had disastrous effects on his health, but the experience of which brought great depth to how he told the Lulu story. While it was originally conceived as one play, Vedekin eventually split the story into two plays. As one would expect, the end of the first of the two plays, Earth Spirit, comes to a very strong conclusion. It brings its narrative arc to a close, because it's a good play. The second play, Pandora's Box, resumes the story and carries it to its tragic end. But Berg decided that he wanted to use a three-act structure for his opera. And the conflict between Vedekin's two-part and Berg's three-part structure plays out in very intriguing ways. Not, none of which are bad. Each of the acts in Vedekin's plays is given a corresponding scene in Berg's opera. So the prologue and four acts of Earth Spirit plus the three acts of Pandora's Box parallel the prologue and seven scenes in Lulu. In as condensed a version as, possi <laughs> as possible, I'm going to walk us through the storyline of the opera, the plays and, and the opera, so you can see how um, they line up together. So the Earth Spirit prologue, which equals the Lulu prologue. An animal trainer invites the audience into his tent to see his, quote, soulless creatures tamed by human genius. Each of the main characters in the opera is given an analogous animal, including Lulu, who happens to be the snake. Earth Spirit Act 1, which is Lulu Act 1, Scene 1. We are in a painter's studio. Dr. Shun, editor-in-chief of a newspaper, has commissioned a portrait of his fiancée. The painter is in the process of painting a portrait of Lulu, who is costumed as Pierrot. And this portrait will continue as a thread through the entire opera. Dr. Schoen's son, Alva, a composer, he's actually a playwright in the play, but Berg turned him into a composer for the opera. I wonder why. Alva arrives to collect his father, and when they are left alone, the painter cannot keep his hands off Lulu. They are surprised by the arrival of Lulu's jealous, elderly husband, the medicinal rat, which there's not really a good translation, like the medical specialist. Lulu's husband bursts into the room and proceeds to drop dead of a stroke. <laughs> Earth Spirit Act 2, which is Lulu Act 1, Scene 2. We are now in the drawing room of, uh, of Lulu and of the painter, who are now married. The portrait of Lulu hangs over the fireplace in a splendid brocade frame. The doorbell rings, and it is an elderly beggar who Lulu has let in, while the painter goes off and leaves to, for work. The beggar, Shigok and Lulu, have clearly known each other for a long time. The doorbell rings again. Lulu shows Shigok out and admits Dr. Schoen. Dr. Schoen demands that Lulu cease her visits to him, as he is finally engaged and he needs to keep a respectable home for his young fiancée. And having Lulu come in and, uh, every day is not looking so good. Schoen insists that his having married Lulu off twice and his supporting her and the painter financially should be enough to make her happy. The painter returns to overhear the end of this conversation. He is surprised. Lulu exits so that Schoen can explain everything to her husband. The painter takes this news very poorly. 
and goes into an adjoining room where he proceeds to cut open his own throat. Shun calls the police while Lulu swears that Shun is going to end up marrying her. Earth Spirit Act 3, Lulu Act 1, Scene 3. This scene takes place in Lulu's dressing room at the theater where she has returned to dancing. Her portrait is now a poster and it's hanging on the back wall. Alva reminds Lulu of when he was 17 years old, right after his mother died, and how he insisted to his father, Dr. Shun, that his father, Dr. Shun, must remarry and that it really should be to Lulu. Lulu is only interested in whether Dr. Shun is going to be at the performance, and so she returns to the stage and her performance. A prince arrives with a plan to take Lulu adventuring with him in Africa. The dance music suddenly stops as Lulu has fainted while dancing and quickly returns to her dressing room in a rage because Dr. Shun has arrived with his fiancée. Dr. Shun and Lulu, Dr. Shun comes into the dressing room. They get rid of everybody. He cannot, uh, they are left alone arguing. When the plan emerges that the prince is going to take Lulu away to Africa, Dr. Shun cannot avoid the fact that Lulu has him in her thrall and that he cannot live without her. The act ends with Lulu dictating Dr. Shun's letter to his fiancée calling off the wedding. That's the end of Act 1 of the opera, but the play has one more scene. Earth Spirit Act 4, which is the first scene, Lulu Act 2, Scene 1. We are now in the magnificent living room of Dr. Shun's house. He is now married to Lulu, third one. Lulu's portrait is on a decorative easel, and it's on, in a re reproduction antique golden frame. The Countess Geschwitz invites Lulu to a ball for women artists, and then takes her leave, Lulu showing her out. Left alone, Dr. Shun draws a revolver from his pocket. He's getting a little paranoid, and he searches the room for eavesdroppers. He hides the revolver when Lulu returns, and he leaves for work. A motley crew of characters, Countess Geschwitz, Shigoch, and several circus performers join Lulu, clearly feeling at home in Dr. Shun's house. Alva's arrival is announced, and everyone hides. Alva confesses his love for Lulu, which is overheard by his father, when Dr. Shun returns unexpectedly. Dr. Shun leads Alva from the room and confronts Lulu. Shun gives Lulu his revolver and demands that she shoot herself. She refuses. There's a commotion, there's chaos. Shun turns away from Lulu and she fires five times into his back. Alva returns and is warned by his dying father not to let her get away and that he will be the next victim. There's a knocking at the door and the police arrive. That's the end of the first play, Earth Spirit. Pandora's Box picks up about a year and a half later. So Pandora's Box Act 1 is the second scene of Act 2 in the opera. We're now in the exact same room as in the prior scene. The portrait is leaning against the wall, facing away from the viewer. Alva, Countess Geschwitz, Shigolch, and the acrobat are in the middle of a complex plan to break Lulu out of prison and are awaiting her imminent return. The acrobat expects to marry Lulu and make her a partner in his circus act. But when she is brought in, she is in a terribly weakened state. She's been in prison for a year and a half, for goodness sake. Oh, and she got cholera on purpose. Um, he leaves, the acrobat leaves, threatening to turn her into the police. Shigoch leaves to buy the train tickets so they can all slip out of the country, and Alva and Lulu are left alone, which is a large love scene between them. He expresses his love for her in ever-increasing ardor. That's the end of Act Two of the opera. Pandora's Box Act 2 is Lulu Act 3, Scene 1. Paris, in a spacious salon. Lulu's portrait hangs prominently in a gold frame. A large group of people in evening dress is gathered. The acrobat proposes a toast in honor of the Countess Adelaide Dubra, the identity that Lulu has taken on in Paris. 
The Marquis, Countess Geschwitz, and Oliva, along with several others, are all present. Oliva has exhausted his inheritance, and there is much talk of shares in a railroad, uh, railroad line that are going to keep them afloat. The Marquis threatens to turn Lulu into the police unless she agrees to work for him in a brothel in Cairo. The acrobat is also threatening Lulu, should she not to continue funneling money to him. Shigoch arrives, and Lulu tearfully tells him of the acrobat's threats. Shigoch actually also wants some money, but, uh, but he's a little sympathetic when she breaks down. The two of them devise a plan to kill the acrobat by luring him to Shigoch's lodgings that night. There is a commotion when news comes that the railroad stocks have crashed and they are all worthless. Lulu realizes they've got to get out of town. So she trades clothing with the groom and slips away with Alva, just as the police come to try to arrest her. Pandora's Box, Act 3, Lulu, Act 3, Scene 2, the final uh, scene of the opera. London, in a wretched attic without windows. The portrait is nowhere to be seen. Shigoch and Alva are speculating on what success they expect Lulu to have in her first night soliciting work as a prostitute. They hear footsteps on the stairs and hide. Lulu enters with her first customer, the professor. He is oddly silent, but she takes him into the bedroom. Alva and Shigoch rummage through the professor's cloak, but they find only a book, which is not helpful to them. The professor leaves, but almost immediately they hear steps on the stairs, maybe coming back to find his book. Countess Geschwitz enters instead, and she's bringing the portrait of Lulu, which she had saved when they escaped from Paris. She accompanies Lulu out when, she leaves to, when Lulu leaves to find her next customer. Alva and Shigo hide as Lulu brings in her next client, an African prince. When he gets rough with Lulu, Alva um, springs to her defense. The prince strikes Alva with a blackjack, knocking him out, actually killing him, and flees. Lulu goes back to, out onto the street. Countess Geschwitz returns, and Shigoch, having hidden Alva's body, takes his leave. He makes a little excuse, um, I'm thirsty, I think I'll go down to the pub for a drink, and wanders off. Lulu returns with her third client, Jack the Ripper, and takes him into the bedroom. There are sounds of a struggle, and Lulu screams. Countess Geschwitz attempts to break down the door to the bedroom. Jack emerges from the bedroom and stabs the countess. Jack leaves, and the opera is over. Yeah, so I think perhaps... In one night of opera, there's as many dead people as in the first half of the whole season. <laughs> so, what we have is an extensive full evening opera, which breaks down naturally in halves based on the two Vatican plays, as well as into thirds based on the structure Berg imposed on the opera. The natural climax that is the end of Vatican's first play, the shooting of Dr. Schoen, falls in the middle of Berg's second act. The finales, such as they are, of Berg's Acts 1 and Act 2 are not so much dramatic landing points, but instead they're the emotional turning points in the opera. Dr. Schoen breaking off his engagement at the end of Act 1, and Alva's reunion with Lulu, and the emotional high point of their relationship at the end of Act 2. So, back to the music. This is a good time for me to introduce the basic DNA of the entire opera. Schoenberg's ideal, his system, his theory, was that every work, even as large a scale piece as Lulu, should be based on a single 12-tone row. Berg diverged from this. And in some ways, he always felt he had to apologize to Schoenberg for not living up to that ideal. Lulu, as we will see shortly, draws from many different 12-tone rows, each associated directly with a single character. But at its core, the following musical material underpins all of the many 12-tone rows. There is a basic series for Lulu, the opera. 
it is related to many things, but it doesn't fit the Schoenbergian ideal. This series right here C, E, F. Oh, I'm talking about pitches instead of numbers, sorry. In its prime zero form, because we started it on the C, is the Lulu basic series. One last thing, which is the basic DNA of the opera. This picture, this portrait of her, which keeps showing up, is represented by a series of four chords, each with three tones in it. So three triads, but drawn from the basic series. So if we take this basic series, this is just copied from there in its P0 form, that's what it is. And I've got here the three groupings. And so this one, we've rearranged them a little bit just to get the right voicing, but these three notes, picture chord one, Picture chord two, picture chord three, picture chord four in their P0 shape because we based it on the basic series in P0. Berga could make any other 12 version of the picture chords by taking basic series and transposing it anywhere and we come up with a different set of chords each with all of the same relationships. He could also invert it and come up with different chords but it still follow the same rules, so there would be inverted picture chords, but you don't need to worry about those so much. But now, but that is the basic musical content, content that you're going to hear through the course of the opera. Now let's delve down just a little bit further, this next layer, and look at the individual characters that are in the opera. And for our purposes, I'm going to divide them into two basic groups, characters who have names and characters who do not have names. Here are the characters who have names. Lulu, Dr. Shun, Alva, Shigol, and Countess Geschwitz. Period. Five. All the others, without names. Lulu's first two husbands, the Meditinalrat, the professor of medicine, and the painter. They had names in the first play. They were Dr. Gall and Schwartz in Vatican's original plays, but not in the opera. Performers, animal trainer, and the acrobat. Um, others, there's a dresser in the theater, a high school boy, a groom, the prince, the manservant, the marquis, the theater manager, the banker. If anybody's singing in this opera, you say, oh, who are you singing? Oh, I'm singing the acrobat. That's the name of the role. The police officer, several others. Lulu's clients in act three, a professor, a negro, and, okay, Jack the Ripper. He's got a name. Vedekin gives all of his characters names in his plays, but Berg does not. In fact, Berg's process of eliminating the names and of some of his non-named characters can be traced in the manuscript. The acrobat's name appears quite often in Berg's manuscript, but was later removed. Why? Ultimately, it seems that Berg was he had determined that while the acrobat is quite a central figure in the drama, he is not, in fact, one of the people who is most influenced by and an influence upon Lulu. That status is reserved for only four people, Dr. Schoen, Lulu's only true love, Alva, Dr. Schoen's son, Shigolch, perhaps Lulu's father, and Countess Geschwitz, a woman who is as drawn into Lulu's orbit as the men are. All the rest of the characters are reduced to an uh, anonymity. They're not given names because they have roles in the piece. They don't deserve names.
Of the named characters, only Shigal survives the opera, which, along with the mystery of who exactly he is, lends even more mystery, this, this mythic nature to, to the role. Now, each of the named characters and quite a few of the unnamed characters is associated quite directly with the 12-tone series, and I want to take a look at some of these now. One might think that I would start with Lulu, right? But no, I'm going to leave her for last. Dr. Shun and his son, Oliva, have quite appropriately rows that share much in common with each other. Oh, I can do this from up here. I've got this here. This is Dr. Schoen's series. Starting on P4, prime version 4, starting on that E. Let's do Oliva's series also, which is basically rooted around this P4 version. I don't listen to those and say, oh, they're so similar. That wasn't his intent. But Berg built in, he boiled into the piece, this kind of relationship. Every third note of this series are the same. So this E that starts the first set of three lines up. This D here lines up. This B flat here. This F sharp here. So father son, and this, again, DNA, literal musical DNA relationship between them. This first three chords of, of Dr. Schoen's theme, I'll even play a fourth one because it's good. That major chord, that represents Schoen in a way. Alva, A minor. We hear that a lot. You will start to recognize that. You may start to recognize Alva as well. Countess Geschwitz has a 12-tone trope. Again, so we're not going to worry about this as an actual sequence all the time that um, breaks down into three parts. If we take basic cell one, In this version of it, that is all white keys. So we take that here, we reorder them a little bit. We make that the C. Then we take the other two white keys, which are this G and this D. Well, that's interesting, a nice perfect fifth. Ooh, haven't heard much of that. The remaining notes are the, all the black keys. So Countess Geschwitz trope, if we were to just go through it in sequence, is this. The acrobat has chords that he's associated with, and the rule kind of to those is white key versus black key. So they're devised by taking the A version of the Countess Geschwitz trope, combining it with the C version, so it's all of the white keys, and then leaving the B version of it on its own, so you get um, white keys versus black keys. Usually, I mean, the first time you actually hear it, it sounds like this. It's again in the prologue as the animal tamer starts to list off his, his animals. It goes like this. And that often appears in the piano part to, to this piece, literally arm on the keyboard, whites and then blacks. You'll hear that.
You, you will definitely hear that. Siegel. Well, Siegel, we already looked at him back when I was writing 12-tone music. Um, we hear him, again, now in the prologue, when he's introduced, he is the worm. And so this is his vocal, uh, the, the line of the animal tamer. Then he, instead of going down to the C sharp, he, opens, he goes up here. All these little units of four chromatic associated notes. And then in the orchestra. As much as you hear fifths and you go, oh, that's Countess Geschwitz. Anytime you hear half steps, that's Schiegel. The painter who dies at the end of scene two is represented by two things, a series of dyads, so two notes that are associated, that are played simultaneously. I have to see if I can read upside down. That series. That underpins so much of the painter's scene. Finally, Lulu's series is devised from the picture chords. The picture chords which were devised from the basic series. If you take these these in the P0, prime ver zero version of it, we take these chords, which we remember as this. Uh, we take that series of chords, and we go sequentially through the highest note, the middle note, and then the lowest note. That becomes the series that Lulu is based on. And we get this. Really interesting because that's a scale. You're just going through the first six pitches. That's a scale. And then this ending, that's almost cadential. This we get to hear an awful lot. And very often, this kind of second pitch of it is given at the very beginning. So we get this figure. So the first time that we hear Lulu's uh, series is in The Animal Tamer when he's introducing the snake. He says, And as you're going through the score, if there's ever a moment when you think, oh, I wonder if, what, if that's a row. I wonder if I should look for that. You just count the pitches. And you get to the end, and you realize, oh, 12 pitches. It's a row. There are several role doublings. There are multiple roles that are sung by one singer. And Berg built these into the structure of Lulu. Often doublings, this is thinking from a practical um, matter, doublings are a way of making an opera more economical to produce. And the combined role is more attractive to a performer. But the doublings in Lulu are often much more than that. They are indeed a critical part of the narrative and dramaturgical structure of the opera. Lulu has three husbands in Act One and in the first scene of Act Two. The Medizinalrat, who has a stroke in the first scene, the painter who kills himself in the second scene, and Dr. Schoen, who is shot by Lulu in Act Two, Scene One. Berg's specific intention was that the three performers of those roles return in Act Three, Scene Two, as Lulu's three clients. 
the Meditinal Rat becomes the professor. The painter becomes the Negro. And the, Dr. Schoen returns as Jack the Ripper. The three husbands who met their end as a result of their relationships with Lulu return to exact their revenge, with Jack the Ripper murdering Lulu in the last moments of the opera. It's a dramatic recapitulation of the first act that is also built into the musical structure, because of course, tone rows and musical material from the Medizinalrat and the painter and Dr. Schoen return in direct quotes in Act 3, Scene 2, making a musical recapitulation that matches that dramatic recapitulation. Other role doublings in the opera are more practical and less dramaturgically integral to the piece. The Marquis in Act 1 and the Prince in Act 3 are sung by the same performer. That tie between the roles was important to Berg, so he bases each character on the same row and the same musical material. However, that performer very often also sings the role of the manservant in Act 2 for quite practical reasons. The manservant shares very much less musical material with the Prince and the Marquis because that was not of dramatic import to, to Berg. Until 1979, when the three-act complete opera was first, was first staged, that full structure with the recapitulation of those characters returning in the final scene had never been seen, had never been heard. And so as much as people thought, this is a masterpiece, they didn't know the half of it because everything that they had gotten up to that point was just the setup. It wasn't, the, it wasn't bringing it all home. So for the remainder of our time tonight, um, I want to take us through the opera sequentially one last time, looking more closely at how these formal and musical ideas are all realized. Once again, we'll go scene by scene, starting with the prologue. We'll focus heavily on Act One as we learn Berg's compositional devices, and then we're going to move relatively quickly so we can get to the final scene of the opera. In the prologue, Berg introduces a tremendous number of themes and musical ideas that we hear developed over the course of the evening. And as you've seen, he introduces all of the characters and their music. At this moment, the animal tamer takes us, invites us into his tent to see all of the different creatures he's assembled. As we said, each an allegor allegory for the characters in the opera. With a crash, the acrobat's white key, he starts his list. We heard earlier how Dr. Schoen is used melodically to introduce the tiger. Berg also creates a leaping figure that is built out of that same tone row. It evokes a pouncing tiger, and it plays a role in the musical drama later in the opera. Um, it is this. If you line them up, the first six pitches of, of the shown row, but in this rhythm, that's that tiger pouncing coming in for the kill. So you can imagine, you'll hear it in Act 3, Scene 2, when Jack the Ripper, who is musically related to Dr. Schoen, comes in for the kill. The Marquis row, I didn't even bother with showing you the Marquis row. He's used to introduce the monkey. You saw Siegel's trope as the worm, Geschwitz's trope as the crocodile, Lulu's row for the snake. And then, much like the pouncing tiger theme for Dr. Schoen, Berg creates a very special theme for Lulu's entrance into the scene. It is, of course, a theme that will return in critical places throughout the opera. But this sequence. Lulu's entrance music. And that is pretty. And when you hear it in the opera, you will realize how pretty it is. So let's listen to the opening of the opera.
ihr stolzen Herren, ihr lebenslustigen Frauen, mit heißer Wollust und mit kaltem Grauen die unbeseelte Kreatur zu schauen. Gewinnlich durch das menschliche Genie. Man sieht mir in der Lust und Trauer spielen. Haustiere, die so wohlgesinnte Fühlen, ein blasser Pflanze kostet die Tetülen und schwelgen im Behaglichen ihr Plär, wie jeder andere unter dem Parterre. Schade Tier, das viele schöne Tier, das, meine Damen, seht ihr nur bei mir. Der ihr wohnt als Wesen, dass in ihr Sprungen läuft, den Unterschlägen. Den Bären, der von Anbeginn gefräßig, bei späten Dachen hoch zu Boden zieht. Sie den kleinen Abrissanten Affen, auf Franke heile seine Kunstknappen. Er hat Talente, doch fehlt ihm jede Größe. Nun kommt der Pferd, er frech mit seiner Blöße. Sie sehen in meinem Zelte meiner Stier. Vor Jahr gleich hinterm Vorhang ein paar mehr. Sie sehen auch das Gewirr aus allen Zonen. Wenn viele Freusche, die in Flüsten wohnen, Sie sehen den Krokodil und andere mehr. Ja, ja, bringt ihr unsere Schlange her. The first thing after the basic cells and all of that, and then the dialogue. Then we get to hear this circus music. This. Circus music, which is going to come back over and over, especially when people are talking about the public. Act one, scene one, is in the painter's studio, and it begins with a brief dialogue that is, it involves Lulu, Oliver, and Dr. Schoen while the painter works. As Oliver and Dr. Schoen are preparing to leave, Dr. Lulu, Dr. Schoen's mistress, we know that, very suggestively asks Dr. Schoen to give her regards to his fiancée. The rising scale of Lulu's row, which is now becoming more and more familiar to us, is her special dig at Dr. Schoen. Here, this is one of those ones that I just love because of the way he plays with it. She says, And she uses her row to talk about his fiance. She loves getting that dig in. We heard earlier how the painter's chords accompany the door closing. Oh, we didn't actually hear that because I, I um, skipped over it. Oh, no, we did. Uh, the, when they leave, and then we hear the painter's chords, which say, oh, this is the painter and Lulu being left alone. It becomes very clearly, clear that they already have a, a, quite a uh, romantic relationship going on, and the painter picks up his pursuit, pursuit of Lulu. This chase around of the stage is perfectly captured by Berg in a short canon. Lulu sings, mostly as I so showed you before, this is one of the things I showed you of her row. 
and the painter echoes. He's chasing her musically. He is one bar behind her singing the exact same material as what she sang as he is chasing her around the stage, one bar behind her. So she sings, Diva Kalman Mekong. And he's, he's literally one bar behind her. As they run around the stage. Let's listen to that a little bit. This is track two. So that music, the, the use of musical form to tell the story that is being enacted on the stage is just fascinating through the entire piece. The opera itself, the play itself, plays out incredibly compelling to anybody who doesn't know anything about the music. But these little insights into it, I don't think people miss that. They don't know it intellectually. They don't go, oh, that's a cannon, and he's chasing her. But it matches what's going on on the stage. And that brilliance of Berg is, um, I think, what sets him apart. He had stories to tell, and he wanted us to perceive them. He didn't care so much about retrograde and retrograde inversion, because that's not his story. He, uh, he just builds it in. Suddenly, they're interrupted by the arrival of Lulu's husband, the Meditinalrat, and we hear the first of the many appearances of this signal motive. This D flat and this A flat happen all over the place. The very beginning of the opera, often on the vibraphone. So you get a, a very different sound to it as well. It announces an entrance or a departure of somebody. So very often, this can sound like a doorbell. But then other times, when it's not in the vibraphone, or it's just hidden in the piano part, maybe, it just means something. Somebody's coming. Somebody's going. For a moment, though, Lulu's husband does not appear, and the two think that perhaps it was just a mistake. When Lulu's husband does burst in, we get the first of several instrumental passages that are going to return verbatim in Act 3, Scene 2, when he becomes the client, the client number one. The orchestra plays this sequence which underpins the dialogue. But we hear this sequence of dyads, which then get layered on top of each other, so they do become the painter chords. This exposition and the recapitulation in Act 3 connect Lulu's first husband, the Meditinalrat, to her first client, the professor. Here, her husband shouts a few lines and falls dead, never singing a note. The professor never says a thing. 
So the two roles are played by an actor. Before we leave this scene, I need to point out one more new element, a rhythmic figure that appears extensively throughout the opera. This fate rhythm is stated in the trombones immediately after the husband dies. At the beginning, and it's at the beginning of the painter has a very tormented aria. But this figure. So a long, long, short, long. That rhythm, the fate rhythm, is going to come around a lot. Act one, scene two, begins with three smaller scenes, each time Lulu with a man, with one of the men who surround her. First, it's the painter, now her husband. Second, Shigol, appearing as a beggar, but maybe he's her father. Then, third, Dr. Schoen, her lover. We have seen how each of these men has a very unique tone row, or trope, and as a result, each of these individual scenes immediately takes on its own character. You cannot mistake Shigol's chromaticism as a musical element with Dr. Schoen's row. Berg also uses contrasting musical forms, little forms, for each of these scenes. First, there's a little duet for the painter and Lulu with this melodic figure that comes several times in verses. She says, Ich finde, du siehst heute aus, das Haar atmet eine Morgenfrische. Ich komme aus dem Bad, mir das and then when it comes back for the second time, it's re exactly repeated. So we saw that canon between them. We saw this little. We see this little duet. Then the signal motive because shigol's there. The shigol scene is a nonet for winds. It's the first of several chamber music forms that appear in the opera. And we've heard. We've talked about his chromatic descending trope and how that is so recognizable. The confrontation between the painter and Dr. Schoen, in which Schoen reveals his relationship with Lulu and which ultimately drives the painter to kill himself, all takes place in a section labeled Monorhythmica by Berg. Monorhythmica, one rhythm. In this extended passage, the fate motive, of course, if there's going to be one rhythm and somebody's about to die, it would be the fate mo motive, it's continuously present. At first, it's extremely drawn out, but gradually, over the course of the scene, it accelerates and accelerates until it's going at a breakneck pace. And then the tempo then gradually slows down again in as extended a retard as the accelerando was in the first place. Let's listen to the beginning of the monorhythmica just so we can get a sense of that. Und 
By the end of the scene, the painter's dead, and the police are on their way. Lulu is unsympathetic to Dr. Shun's concerns that being involved in this suicide will tarnish his reputation, and she defiantly states that he is indeed going to end up marrying her. The final scene of Act One takes place in Lulu's dressing room, and the scene opens with the orchestra silent, but a, a jazz band playing offstage. Lulu, we're in the dressing room, and so that means over there is the theater where the band is playing and she goes off to dance. So it would have to be an offstage jazz band. Why not? Lulu and Alva speak over this entirely new musical world. It's first a ragtime, and then it's an English waltz. And in between, there's a little short duet for the two of them, and Alva's row starts to emerge. We hear this at the beginning of their duet, that A minor chord. Let's listen to a little bit of this scene. The prince who wants to take Lulu away to Africa makes an appearance in her dressing room. The chorale that accompanies him is an entirely new musical element that is also going to return in Act 3 when the same singer portrays the Marquis, Act 3, Scene 1. Let's listen, but first at the very beginning of this track you're going to hear Alva. Remember when I said he was talking about Act 3 of his opera and how it was going to be about his father? That's where we jump into this before the Marquis makes his entrance. Literarischen 
Much later on in the scene, after a great deal of commotion that arose from Lulu's having fainted during her performance, she and Dr. Schoen are left alone in the dressing room. This confrontation picks up the sonata movement, developing and recapitulating the musical ideas that were introduced earlier in the opera. The tiger leaping theme reappears as Dr. Schoen uh, launches into his argument. And then another one. And his melody, of course, wie kannst du die Zähne gegen mich ausspielen? And again later, bei deiner Herkunft ist er ein Glück für dich, vor anständig, all drawn, drawn from him. At the very close of the scene, we're going to hear the 6-8 of the canzonetta with its lilting dance figures. Lulu gives him a piece of paper on which he will write this letter that she is dictating, breaking off the engagement. And I find that this delightful. It's a striking twist on the Countess Susanna letter duet from Marriage of Figaro, where Countess sings a little phrase, and Susanna writes it and sings it. And Countess sings, and Susanna writes. Same thing happens. Lulu sings, and Dr. Schoen answers as, he, as he's writing it down. Then he stops singing. He just writes it. But we hear him writing in the echo that's in the orchestra. At the very close of the scene, we hear Dr. Schoen singing, Now Comes the Execution, to the theme of the, the closing theme, followed by a pounding statement of the fate rhythm and a quick curtain. So let's listen to this. This is track seven.
The two scenes in Act Two are extremely large, sprawling scenes. They're extraordinary, they're complex, but for our purposes here tonight, I want to move through them rather quickly. The same musical strategies that we've looked at in Act One continue in Act Two, recurring rows, the basic cells, the signal motive, which gets used a lot in scene one because there's a lot of people coming and going, and of course that fate rhythm. I do want to play you the very opening of Act Two, though, because the very beginning of it is that fate rhythm again, echoing what you just heard at the end of Act One, and then those open fifths that we haven't heard yet of Countess Geschwitz trope as they create an entirely new atmosphere. Now, later in the scene, Lulu and Dr. Schoen end up in an extended argument. It's a five-verse aria-duet scene, into the middle of which Countess Geschwitz, she's been hiding behind the curtain. She emerges from her hiding place. And the dissonant, angular, rhythmic energy of the argument suddenly opens up to a shocking C major with her distinctive open fifths. Here's a little bit of that passage. At the end of the scene, Lulu shoots Dr. Schoen, her husband, five times in the back. And this time she cannot escape. The police arrive and they arrest her. As we discussed earlier, this is the end of Vatican's first play. Now, Beric had to figure out how to get from play one to play two in the middle of his act two. And the way that he devised groundbreaking was the following interlude. It's called the film music. The film music is less than three minutes long, and it's a musical palindrome. It's a churning, tumultuous rush of music that at its midpoint rises up to a fermata, stops, pauses there, and then we... Uh, here, this is the rush up. Oh, of course, basic cell one. The signal motive, and then back down. And then we hear everything that's happened up to that point played backwards. And I want to read a little bit from Berg's composer note from the, the libretto to explain why he chose this musical palindrome. Composer's note. During the transitional music, a silent film is to indicate the course of Lulu's fortunes in the next year. The film sequence, in accordance with the symmetrical course of the music, should also be quasi-symmetrical, i.e. it should run forwards and then backwards. To this end, the events that correspond together with their accompanying phenomena should be fitted together as closely as possible. This yields the following series of scenes following the directions of the arrows. And of course, then there's a diagram that shows what has happened in the year and a half that Lulu, that has happened between the, the two acts. She is arrested. There are three people concerned in the arrest. Lulu is in chains. There's a detention pending trial. There is a trial. Then she goes into prison. And then right there, the one-year imprisonment. Then it starts to back out. The prison door opens, awakening will to live. Lulu's portrait as a reflection in the shovel. Then she's leaving the prison. She 
contracts cholera on purpose so that she can go into the cholera, cholera ward. And then Countess Geschwitz also contracts cholera from outside prison, comes into the cholera ward, and then they trade clothes. So that then they think that Lulu is staying in prison, but Lulu dressed as Countess Geschwitz leaves. That is the action of this film music as it goes into prison, then back out medical. Instead of the trial, then there's the medical council, and then she's back out and we're launched into act two. Let's listen to the film music. We're, launching in, we're launched into Act 2, Scene 2, the beginning of the second Vatican to play. Lulu's escape from prison is explained. Her arrival is the, the moment of horror for the acrobat. It's of great emotion for Alva. Alva declares his love for Lulu, who quietly draws his attention to the fact that they're sitting on the actual divan upon which his father died. It's a moment that actually in a couple days in the New, the New York Times wrote about this moment. It's the central to the psychology of the piece. I'm not going into psychology here. I've got enough music to deal with. The first scene of Act 3 alternates between tumultuous public scenes and sm smaller private scenes. In most of the private scenes, some man is trying to extract money from Lulu, who doesn't have any. The private scenes are shaped by the tone rows and musical styles associated with the men, Shigo, the Marquis, and the acrobat. The circus music returns three times in this scene to announce and frame the wild public scenes. And that is what gives this whole scene its overarching structure. I'm going to leave this scene behind now. I'm going to move to the interlude between this and the final scene, and the introduction of an entirely new musical idea. It's the Procurer's Song, the tune that I told you was written by Vatican, the playwright, and sung by him in a kind of Mac the Knife style. Berg was clearly fascinated by it, and it plays a central role in the end of the opera, the theme and variations. 
He introduces it first in the horn and then makes three further variations in this interlude. And it stands out so especially because it is clearly not a 12-tone row. It is a plain, old, pretty melody. So here we go. This is the interlude. And we've looked at tone rows, and we've looked at the simultaneities of two, three, and four notes through the opera. The final scene has two extremely striking 12-tone simultaneities at its critical moments. All 12 pitches stacked up on top of each other simultaneously. The first, which we'll listen to now, occurs when Countess Geschwitz arrives with a portrait of Lulu that, she, that has been conspicuously absent from the stage. Lulu reacts in horror, singing, my portrait, get it away from my eyes, throw it from the window. <laughs> So this stack up of that simultaneity, which a person doesn't have enough fingers for, is when the picture arrives. Lulu's second client, the Negro, is sung by the same singer as the painter. We think that this is, um, Berg just thought this was really kind of funny because uh, the painter's name is Schwarz, black. And so, of course, when he, he shows back up, he should be a black person. Um, just as with the painter's suicide scene, this scene is dominated by the fate rhythm, but this time it's Alva who is killed. Lulu's third client, Jack the Ripper, reintroduces Dr. Schoen's row, which fe features prominently in the vocal lines of this final episode, as we were expecting. His entrance is, of course, announced by the tiger leaping motive. We have not heard this material since Act 2, Scene 1, because Dr. Schoen has not been alive. And as we reach the second 12-tone simultaneity of the scene, it's the orchestra chord that accompanies Lulu's death scream. I'm going to let this play for a couple minutes out to the end of the opera. We hear Countess Geschwitz's open fifths take over. She's outside the locked door. She's pounding on it, trying to get in to save Lulu. Jack the River comes out and stabs her, still with those fifths. Jack sings, well, that was a piece of work. And then there's a twisted version of the circus music. As he wipes his hands, the blood off of his hands on the Countess's skirt, and he leaves. Then the Countess has one dying phrase to sing before the curtain comes down, and there are, of course, several layers of the fate rhythm overlapping. 
let's listen. This is again building up through that no, 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 leading up to the 12 tone simultaneity. Thank you all for sticking through this, which was more than you bargained for. I appreciate it. And um, if any of you just need to run now, please do. Thank you. It's been a, a treat to kind of share some of this piece with you, and I'm happy to stick around and answer some questions. So thanks. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. We love having Maestro Osbitt at the Guild, and he will definitely be featured again on our podcast. Don't forget that the Mets Live in HD broadcast of Lulu is scheduled for November 21st, 2015. 
So if you are not in the New York City area or are unable to attend the live production inside the house at the Met, definitely take a look at your local movie theaters to see if the HD broadcast will be near you. If you liked what you heard today, leave us a comment or a review in iTunes and be sure to subscribe to the Met Opera Guild podcast to be certain that you receive new episodes as soon as they are available. That's all for today. I'm Naomi Baratera, your host, and we look forward to having you back for future episodes. Thank you.